You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shaka Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. I know we took a week off last week, but we're back with a bang with some amazing guests lined up here for the next few weeks. And of course, I have my now favorite co-host, <laughs> Gary Hawkins, who has effectively replaced <laughs> Stephanie again at the top of the perch. But I'm sure Stephanie will be back one of these days. But Gary, how are you? Great, Shaker. Thank you. Great to be with you again today. Yes, yes. And, you know, weather is finally perking up, right? The snow has gone. The spring is setting in here. And, and today, actually, we have an amazing guest. I mean, we've spoken to retailers. We've spoken to some start- startups. But I think it's the first time today that we have a guest from the industry, from an association in the industry who's got a really keen insights about what's happening in retail. And I'm sure you guys are going to absolutely enjoy the conversation today. So without any further ado, I want to welcome Doug here to our podcast. Doug, it's so great to have you here. And uh, why don't you take a few minutes, introduce yourself, tell us where you come from, uh, what you do at FMI and whatever else you want to add. So here's Doug. Sure, sure. So first, thanks for having me, Shaker and Gary. This is this is awesome. I love doing these. Just sort of getting around the table and having a conversation. I had the pleasure of having a long career in the industry before coming to FMI. Uh, started with a division of Kroger in store operations, spent several years with them, and then went off into manufacturing with Nabisco uh, prior to Kraft owning them, but did work with them during that that acquisition. And then went a completely different route. I joined up with Albertsons and went into private brands and then found myself moving across the country slowly as I worked with a sales and marketing agency, supporting other retailers with their private brand programs. So I've, I started in Ohio, went to Arizona, and I've made my all the way back to Washington, D.C. by way of Texas. <laughs> Been with FMI now for seven years. It's uh, a real pleasure. I, I would, I would, for me, this is sort of like the pinnacle of my career. And after 32 years in industry, it was great to be able to come to FMI and now have an opportunity to give back. Uh, the way I look at FMI is a, it's an opportunity to advocate and educate and create platforms for uh, collaboration and and give back to the industry that gave so much to me and, and my family um, as we were we were all growing up together. So for FMI, I, I have the pleasure of facilitating several uh, councils. One area of practice is private brands. I also have the opportunity to lead our FMI tech platform, which is anything related to technology and, and how that crosses the entire uh, store and entire supply chain. And it's really sort of what introduced me to Gary and, and, and by way of Gary through to you, Sekar, is, is technology. So uh, that's, that's a growing practice inside of FMI. You know, I mean, as, as quickly as technology is growing, we find that we, we're constantly evolving the way we support the industry inside of FMI. And then I also have the opportunity to have oversight of asset protection and, and crisis uh, for FMI in the industry. So, you know, this past year has been been busy. It's been a crisis du jour, all while being under the compression of the pandemic, because uh, none of the other natural disasters or human-made disasters have ever uh, subsided just because the pandemic was here. We just had to learn how to deal with them while we were in the pandemic. So it's uh, it's been great. I get to do something. It feels like with FMI, I get to some, do something new every day. And I get to meet new people every day, like yourselves. And I get to have a new conversation every day. So I couldn't have asked for a better way to round out my career. 
No, that, that's terrific. So, Doug, sort of jumping right in here, you know, one of the roles you have with FMI is heading the CIO Council. And I have to imagine that gives you some pretty unique insight into what retailers are thinking about, uh, some of their challenges they're having with regard to technology and, and, you know, things that are moving so fast here in this world. Any thoughts you could share with us around what your understanding is of some of those key challenges retailers are focused on right now? Yeah, it's hum- it's finding time to do everything they need to do, right? <laughs> there is a horizontal list of priorities, and uh, it just depends on which one's rising above or falling below within the council, which we're actually reorganizing the council right now, and we're going to be opening it up to other uh, companies to participate. So we actually created a structure that I think is pretty exciting. And it's going to be led by an industry leadership council. And then the executive committee is going to be the old CIO council uh, where retailers and wholesalers meet. But we want to start bringing other, other companies into the fold to have these conversations. And every single year, we sort of look at our priorities as a group. And what are the things that retailers are really focused on and created a cool chart. So I might glance up every now and then because there's so much on it, you know, Um, and and truthfully, I wasn't, I was sort of joking. I was half kidding early. It's, it's, it's finding the time and money to do all of the things that they need to do. But there's really four buckets uh, that we've sort of organized the priorities for uh, the industry's technology And it's shopper experience, operational efficiencies, supply chain, and data analytics. And then within that, you tick into those various topics around frictionless checkout, in-store activation like uh, ESLs and digital signs. Of course, online shopping, uh, right? E-commerce as a result of the pandemic. That's one of those things that might have been an important activity, but it became an essential activity as a result of the pandemic. And then um, workforce. Uh, you know, I mean, for various reasons, it's it's how do we retrain our workforce in order to be able to live within uh, a society of technology-driven activities? And then also thinking about the fact that within the pandemic, we were dealing with an enemy that was actually trying to take away your workforce. Uh, so what are those things we need to think about moving forward uh, if we ever have to deal with this again, what are the automated type act activities that we can do that can support human labor um, so that we don't find ourselves in a similar situation? You know, and then under um, uh, data analytics, um, we now have a, a, a discussion group. It's a data and analytics discussion group. And retailers, you know, there's no shortage of data. It's really, it's the opportunity the time to be able to glean the insights out of the data. And, you know, as more and more uh, companies and individuals inside of these uh, that are trying to take advantage of this data, it's how do you support the information technology team that are getting these ad hoc requests on a daily basis and typically from multiple people, right? So this, the, the discussion group right now is saying, you know, we need to develop uh, a platform Uh, that is governed and secure so that anybody inside of our organization can access some readily and reusable type uh, reports so that they don't all become ad hoc, only the special ones are ad hoc. And so how do they create that portal that allows employees throughout the organization to interact with the data that they're collecting? And then on on adjacent to that is how do we make that data more accessible to our trading partners? 
in order to be able to improve demand planning, forecasting, you know, OSA and et cetera. So there's a lot of, a lot of things that they're trying to work on, um, attempting not to boil the ocean, but some days you feel like you have to. No, that's amazing. I mean, this is obviously, you know, big problems, right. And, you know, require out of the box thinking and really innovative thinking. So from the, from the perspective of, you know, these discussion groups that, that happen, what's the approach to the solution? Is it a lot of them are in terms of build by partnership? What is it that retailers really look out for? And, and where do you feel that they really need help? Yeah. The answer to that shaker is yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're buying, they're building, they're partnering. It really, uh, I think, I think long-term majority of the companies that are in this discussion group would love to be able to build something internally supported by third parties. There's certain platforms that they're going to need to buy into. There's certain cloud data access that they're going to have to buy into, but they, they, they want to be able to customize it to, to the much of the, they possibly can. Here's the challenge is that it's, it's a significant expense to build a data and analytics team, right? To be able to harness the data, glean the insights, and then provide it back out. So in some instances, they're having to find quick wins. And they can find those quick wins working with a third party to deliver and show the operators what is possible. So while they're building the platform on this side, they're delivering quick wins along the way on this side to keep the leaders engaged and keep it on as a budget item, right? I mean, again, retailers are, you know, they live on a very small margin, uh, you know, one penny to three pennies on every dollar if you're really successful and you got to really be judicious in how you're spending that money. So from this aspect, they really need to deliver real-time wins as they're building this. Really, it's it's an organization inside of an organization. Right, right. So it's really, you know, they have to trade off between tactical solutions and strategic solutions, I guess, you know. Yes, yeah. yeah. And a heavy focus on governance. Right. Um, many of them are still trying to figure that out. You know, how do we, how do we govern this uh, information that we've got? You know, we also have a starting to, unfortunately, we're starting to see a patch quilt of privacy laws coming out, uh, yeah. coming into play across the country. And how does that, you know, affect the information that's being utilized to, to glean these insights? Yeah. And I'm, I'm assuming, Doug, you know, when we talk about data like this, it's both, you know, product data as well as customer data, right? And, mm -hmm. and how those things come together. And I think the other dimension that's challenging everyone here is data is moving faster and faster, right? We're all living in a real-time world today. And, you know, the need for almost real-time insights. Well, yeah. And moving from in-store loyalty card to online, you actually even open up more data that is gleanable off right. of the consumer, right? So it was coming in like in a fire hose beforehand, <laughs> you know, now it's like somebody opened up the dam. Right. And, and right. Uh, it's, it's being able to process and, and get those insights out of that and get them back out. You know, obviously it's to really do the one thing that everybody wants to do. And that is meet the customer demand. Right. Yeah. So one of the things that we've always noticed, and it was funny because I don't have a background in retail. Like I come from, I'm an engineer, I've worked in, you know, several industries, including Wall Street and jumped into retail. So no background in retail whatsoever, unlike Gary. And, and so the first thing I noticed when we started Birdseye was the lack of standards and actual data, 
right, that retailers carry. And, and a lot of the new services, the cutting edge services, the machine learning, the AI, they're all dependent on good quality data, right? And, and so how do retailers approach that problem? You know, when they're trying to put their heads together, what are some of the solutions that you've seen to addressing that? Because that seems very foundational. If you don't have good data to start with, then it doesn't really matter what you have after that. Yeah. It's really difficult to do anything. Yeah, and you know, the unfortunate thing with that is, is that uh, it's, it's something we've been dealing with for 20, 30 years, right? I mean, just foundational data between business partners, trading right. partners has been a challenge. And now you have all this additional data that is consumer facing that, you know, that are consumers are demanding. And, I, and, and we found a way to, to get an end around with the B2B data, right? We found a way to get the product into the store, get it on the shelf, get the vendor paid for, you know, and, and processes were put into place to deal with bad data. Consumers aren't going to give us that kind of right. flexibility, right? I mean, it's, you know, digital must equal physical. And right. so there has been a lot of work going on. And I would say probably the one thing that really drove most brand owners, and I'm going to put retailers and, you know, they're all brand owners. Retailers have private brands. The smart label was really sort of a catalyst for, needing to clean up your data, especially your consumer facing data. Because basically what you're telling the consumer that clicks on a smart label uh, QR code is that here's it, here it is. I'm giving you everything, right? I'm pulling the veil back and I'm sharing with you more than you could ever access on a package. And so the brand is responsible for that data. Smart label isn't a big database in the sky. Right. It's either brand owned data or it's, it's being housed in a third party but it's automatically being updated by that brand. And so the one thing that we learned pretty quickly is that not only does the data need to be cleaned up, it needs to be centralized. You go inside a retailer, marketing has data, procurement has data, right? Supply chain has data, it's everywhere. And so it, it's, it's making sure that those MDMs are now in a centralized location that are speaking or speaking clearly to each other, right? In a lot of instances, they were siloed and not interdependent, uh, but you got to get that, get that uh, connectivity back together. And that's a project that's still going on today. I know our, our, our partnership with GS1, they have the Retail Grocery Initiative Executive Leadership Council, and they've been working on you know, various quality, data quality projects. And it's actually going all the way back to the very beginning. Right. The seven foundational attributes. Does your product even have a GTIN that is really yours and does, right. is not owned by somebody else? And is it in the GDSN, right? So it's really sort of starting from square one. But every time we do that, we make a leap forward and we make another leap forward, but it's those foundational platforms like smart label and other things that consumers are using to learn more about products they use consume that are going to continue to drive this need for good, clean quality data. Yeah. We, we certainly are seeing, you know, more and more retailers putting, you know, CDPs in place to manage, bring together all their customer data in one place. Uh, PIMS to, you know, do the same thing on the product side, bring all that data together and have one source of truth, one repository uh, for it. But, you know, yeah. there's a lot of work to do on both sides. And, yeah. and that's just really putting the foundation pieces in place. That's not, okay, now that I have this data, what do I do with it, right? And then you got to create the whole set of BI tools to actually make it come to life. Well, right. yeah. And I, I think, 
you know, what's happening there is, again, something really interesting. You know, as, as human beings, we tend to, we can't think of a million different things at once. We tend to group and categorize things, right? You know, think of product category management, right? You know, in the store. And we do the same thing when we think of customers, right? Whatever you want to call the groups, gold, silver, bronze, whatever, we tend to categorize them. And yet new technologies and tools like AI and machine learning are opening the door to literally being able to function and manage at the individual customer level across thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of shoppers all at the same time. And, you know, I, I think that just adds a lot more complexity to this whole puzzle. It, it does. But I, the thing I do like about it, it's similar to what you said earlier, Shaker. You don't come from this industry. And we need people and tools that don't look at the industry through the same lens that Gary and I look through it. Right. I, I would say Gary is definitely sort of like one of those push lean forward type of individuals. But you know, I was a retailer. I like, I, you know, I, I don't want to do anybody injustice, but I tell everybody I was a can stacker, right? Mm-hmm. I was in the stores. I was, I was stacking boxes and stacking cans. And, and it was something you just did every day. And it was always with the consumer in mind. So to now have to open up your view and say, you know what, the way we were doing maybe isn't the right way, you know, put so much pride in the way we were doing it to yeah. say that we might need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and look at this in a completely different set of eyes. It's these types of discussions. It's those types of tools that AI technology brings to the play without any emotion whatsoever. And it's individuals like your shelf shaker that come from other industries and say, why are you doing it like this? Right, right. I mean, you know, it's such a simple problem, right? Product categorization that Gary talked about. You go, to every, you go to retailers and you look at their item file, their category file. They're all different. Right? There, there doesn't seem to be a standard category. Yes, you know, you have the Nielsen's who have their categorizations and stuff like that. But typically what, ha- what I've seen happen is that a retailer will get the Nielsen categories and then it'll slowly diverge over time, right? Because somebody hasn't done the due diligence of categorizing new products that are coming in and products that have been going out. So you stand, you wind up with this, uh, you know, everybody's got their own little variation of product categories and it becomes very difficult when you're trying to build solutions that are trying to normalize this data, right? Those are all challenges. And, you know, and I, know, I know that GS1 is kind of, trying to tackle some of these things. And it's not an easy thing to do. And, you know, I think they've tried to put together kind of a data repository that you can subscribe to and a, and a manufacturer can go and update all of that stuff. And I know it's, it's one of those, you know, can you catch, catch a wave poop on the sand? You know, it's like, it's very slippery, right? So are there discussions around that at FMI in terms of how can retailers work together, cooperate and, and brands actually? to uh, standardize some of this stuff. Yeah, so we were talking about this on a panel that I led yesterday with supply chain professionals and the pandemic really, you know, we talk about things like transformational change activities or events. The pandemic was one of those events that, that is causing transformational change in this industry. And a lot of it was simply because I needed to take care of my customer that day. Mm. Right. I have to find a way to get around this obstacle. The one thing I think 
you know, is really hard as a former retailer is everything we do, we try to create a competitive advantage out of it. So to your point about, you know, category classifications, that, that was a head scratcher. When I was a retailer, it didn't bother me as much because I had a partner and I used that partner in their category classifications. When you're in the industry and you're looking, you know, outside in and you're not actually working with one of those partners, you're going, well, wait a minute, isn't there a more efficient way to do this? Well, right. it's my competitive advantage to do it this way. So we, we try to turn everything into a competitive advantage. Right. And, I, and I think, you know, through this pandemic, we've found out that there are some things that although we compete, we can cooperate. Um, the famous term coopetition, um, you, whether it's being sharing assets, sharing data, you know, so I think we've, we're starting to unlock that. And PepsiCo had a really good example of how they were working with retailers early on in the pandemic when they were calling them up and saying, hey, we need to, we need to have a better understanding or we need more inventory on this or we're going to, we're going to need your help here. And, and, and PepsiCo was like, wait a minute, time out. Here's, here's the information we've got. If there's more information that you can provide to me to help me make a better decision on your behalf, then let's, let's do that. And so I'm sure they weren't the first, but, but they've been talking about it as a best in class uh, moving forward is the tr sharing of data between trading partners and if you're going to start doing that, you need to start having some consistent standards so that you maintain interoperability, right? You can't hand it to a, a one trading partner and they're getting it from all of their uh, other trading partners, retailers, wholesalers, whoever they are, and it looks differently. Right. Um, it's got to come in. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be usable. Um, and again, we can do workarounds, but why? Why create more work? Um, you know, let's, let's get some standards and that, that it, you know, back to the whole conversation around standards that when you were talking about it, what it made me think of is a lot of times, some of this new stuff is moving so fast that somebody's trying to get first mover rights. Right. And so we have a tendency to forget that where will we be three, five years from now and how many more players will be in the game and what ultimately will the industry benefit how ultimately will the consumer benefit if the industry starts thinking about this more holistically? Uh, voice, as an example, you know? Okay, so Amazon, Google, Siri, they're all leading the way. But how do retailers now start engaging in that um, with the anxiety of being on a proprietary platform and having their customer data go through a proprietary platform, you know, versus an open voice platform that has standards and interoperability governances that allows the retailer to feel comfortable that while I'm engaging with my customer, the data that's being shared is my data and it's not right. being viewed or used anywhere else. And obviously, you know, we talked about some of these challenges that retailers are facing, but I think also the pandemic has resulted in maybe even new business models coming to the fore, right? So new ways of actually providing groceries to people and, you know, taking advantage of some of these newer technologies. So I know, uh, Gary, we've talked a, a little bit about some of these new technologies, like, you know, is it GoPuff and Bridge No More? And so what do you see from a, from by way of disruption that you think retailers need to be aware of and, you know, interesting technologies that your business models that you've seen come to the market? For what we've been seeing is, is uh, they're dealing with the most pressing issues at the most pressing moment right now. So whatever technologies are helping retailers with frictionless checkout, 
right? Those are, those are really important technologies. Anything that's helping them with e-commerce and fulfilling the last mile of e-commerce more profitably. You know, although we saw what a 14% decline in, in uh, February in online sales, and, I, and we haven't seen March yet, but are we going to start seeing a trend? It's still a significant increase over what we had. So we right. can't anticipate that we're going to go back to the way it was. And right. it wasn't very profitable beforehand. So what, what is it that, what are those technologies that we need to put in place in order to become profitable with e-commerce? And then the third one that I would say is any technologies that help me automate some of the mundane, high, high labor intensive type activities. You know, and there's a lot of conversation about robots going down the aisle versus a camera, you know, that's on the sh- fixed on the shelf to look at out of stocks. And, and that debate goes back and forth. They're all helpful. Everybody wants to know who's going to have the longevity. And I think we'll, you know, the market will play itself out. But then, you know, other areas of automation, think about manufacturing, you know, and what we've had to go through as a result of the pandemic, what types of automation type technology can we put into place, um, you know, even even to sort of reduce the amount of labor, not just get rid of it altogether, but reduce the amount of dependency on human labor so that those, those humans can do other activities. So for, for what I've been seeing, it's, it's those technologies in, in business models. Yeah, the one business model that I think is just fascinating that we haven't quite figured out in this country is backhaul. And you look over in Europe, um, competitors are sharing equipment, right? Nobody wants an empty truck on the road. Hmm. And so we've had the conversation, but we just have never been able to get to the point where trading partners are doing it, okay? So retailers might have a relationship with a manufacturer, but extending that out to where one retailer is backhauling for another retailer, you know, it's, it's being able to get past that mindset that my truck might show up on my competitor's uh-huh. lot, right? right. <laughs> well, in Europe, they're doing it uh, and they've been doing it for 10 years. And so from a, a sustainability standpoint alone, there's, there's enough of a use case to say yes. Um, empty trucks on the road burning fuel is, is not very sustainable. And from a labor standpoint, we have a shortage in, in trucking. And so this is a way to address that. So that business model, in my opinion, I think I would love to see continue to excel. And I, I think we will get there in this country, especially because labor is going to continue to become a problem. And- you know, somebody, I was on a, a session the other day where the speaker said by 2035, there will be more over 65-year-olds than under 18-year-olds in our country. Our country population will look more like Europe's than it will look like our own. And that's been somewhat of a, pres- um, uh, a precedent as to why Europe's had to do some of the automation activities and model sharing activities that we haven't, because mm-hmm. our workforce age uh, has been plentiful. But that's going to change by 2035. There's change everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. So, uh, I mean, uh, I think one of the things that you touched upon that really got me thinking is about this change in mindset that has to happen, right? And, uh, you know, when you talk about change in mindset is also, you know, traditionally retailers have had certain organizational structure in terms of you know, people that they've hired had had their team. And now with these, you know, things about e-commerce becoming a focus, more technology becoming a focus, uh, I'm sure more retailers are thinking about how do I build a technology team internally, right? An analytics team internally. 
what what do you think they're doing in terms of attracting the necessary talent? Because one of the things that might happen is that somebody who's gone to school, done computer science and done some AI is not looking to go work at a grocery store, a grocery company, right? They're thinking about going Silicon Valley, some hi-fi startup, you know, something like that. So what do you think uh, retailers are doing in terms of attracting talent? Like yeah. that's, 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 that's critical if you want to build these technologies, right? And, and that shaker is a whole session in itself. <laughs> right. um, you know, prior to, and Gary's had the opportunity to experience it, um, the retailers that were really putting a stake in the ground were actually trying to create campuses that, that mimicked Google and Amazon and others, right? You know, if I'm going to bring somebody from a major metropolitan area to a middle town America, I need to at least provide them a working environment that, you know, that they're more conducive to understanding the demographic that they're in. And I hate to keep going back to the pandemic, but it's changed so much, as Gary said, it's now even more difficult for retailers. And it's, it's also easier for retailers to poach against each other. I don't have to go into the right. office anymore, right? right? I can work from home. So on one hand, it allows you a larger pool to compete in. So if I'm in small town America, I can recruit from Seattle because right. I don't necessarily need the person come into the office, right. but they still demand more in a salary because of where they live. Right. And because everybody else is recruiting them from that same pool, those who have the capital win. So, you know, I think that whole thing needs to shake out as well. And there's, there's a popular opinion that in some instances, you know, we need them to be geographically located, maybe not near the office, but close enough that they can get to the office. So if we're starting a sprint team, we can bring everybody together, get the project underway. And then when you go home and start doing your coding, you can do that from your own place and then bring everybody back. So there's like this hybrid model um, mm -hmm. that seems to be playing out. So I think we'll start seeing uh, larger pools of regional recruitment and, and for the really big companies that, that are, uh, they'll identify positions that it doesn't matter where you live at in the country or the world, um, and you'll be able to, to sit there. So I wish I had a better answer, and right. I thought I would have not even just two weeks ago since my last CIO Technology Council meeting. Right. <laughs> we spent half the meeting talking about this. Right. Um, and since that conversation, I'm going, holy crap. You know, <laughs> now we have a new dynamic we need to figure out. Yeah, yeah. You know, because some of the so much of the technology that most retailers I see have is so operationally focused and not innovation focused, right? It's right. about you know how do I keep, make sure my POS is running and my supply chain, my ordering is happening, and and the deals are coming in, and it's about pricing, and so little is actually customer facing innovation technology, right? Yeah, and uh, and, and you know, and I think. And that's where the e-commerce companies, you know, some some people who are purely digital natives, right? Pure e-commerce companies are winning out because they're digital first. So they've kind of grown up in that space of handling data and 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 in dealing with all of this stuff. That some of the brick and mortar companies are struggling to kind of catch up in that area. It seems like. Yeah, somebody said one time, is it is it easier uh, for brick and mortar to, to morph into technology or is it easier for technology to sell stuff, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the big thing. When you put a technology company together and they start selling stuff, they don't carry the same kind of institutional knowledge, maybe baggage sure. <laughs> that a retailer does. That's Because here's the other thing too. 
brick and mortar is still their most valuable asset, right? right? E-commerce, although growing, is still a smaller percentage of their total volume than in And not as profitable. <laughs> and, and not as profitable on top right. of that. Right. So it's, it's also trying to figure out what types of technologies do you, do you use to delight the consumer while they're in your store, at the same time making their shopping trip efficient. So how will my handheld device make my shopping trip uh, less frictionless? And, you know, we're starting to see that again, you know, go outside of our industry. And I, I think of Home Depot as being a really good example. If I need to find something in a Home Depot and as much as I love wandering the aisles, my wife really would prefer me to get in and get out. Right. I go into the app and I put in what it is I want right. and it tells me what aisle and what bay. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So more retailers that are starting to look at it that way will help reduce that trip time in the store. And then you also got to go back to voice, you know, in three to five years, your handheld is going to be your personal avatar, right? So this conversation will be back and forth and, and how do retailers ensure that their data is, is accurate enough? How do we ensure that the standards are interoperable? Uh, I say soda, you say pop, Gary says Coke. They all mean the same thing. But the computer doesn't know that. The art of the AI doesn't understand that. So we've got to build that language dictionary in order for that customer to interact. So those in-store technologies, in my opinion, are probably even more important. But again, pure play, I don't have to worry about that. Right. I'm a technology company that is going to sell stuff and it just happens to be food. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you know, look what's what's happening with some of these companies that are digital native, you know, they don't and they're not operating stores and yet they've got massive valuations, right? That, that are exceeding a lot of traditional retailers that have stores that have traditionally been their key assets. You know, now the asset is, you know, either a business model focused around fulfillment, a delivery time. And I think an increasing component of that is, is customer intelligence, right? You look at all these companies that are more pure play, they are digitally engaged with every single one of their shoppers. They know names, addresses, emails, phone numbers, you know, what they're buying, how much they're paying for it, where they're getting it from. Uh, that, that data is becoming a massively valued asset for these companies. Right. A, a, a big asset. And, and for brick and mortar retailers too, here's, here's some of the differences is does the digitally native retailer, do they use it to drive their business? And do they use it to make their trading partners better for them? Hmm. Um, and then you have the other side of this is some of them use the data to drive their business and they're happy to give it to their trading partner, but there's gonna be a little bit something in it, yeah. which, which creates a point of friction, right? If, if ultimately I need to give you every tool and resource that you need in order to make me more successful, then that value alone um, should be enough. And so again, it's a culture shift. And I think we'll get there. It's just as Gary and I both know, having long time careers in this industry, we, we take a little bit longer to get to that next step. We're moving a lot more quickly than we ever have uh, right. out of necessity, yeah. but we're still not moving at the pace of some other industries. Right. No, that, that's right. But I, I think we're also seeing a shift in how value is actually created right? Mm -hmm. It is no longer necessarily tied to that physical store. 
you know, ultimately, yes, it's getting that product from the point of manufacture to that consumer, but there's a lot of different ways that can happen. But, it, you know, in the digital world, you look at companies like a Facebook, Google, you know, so many others that have grown exponentially, it's because of the digital networks they've created. And these, these digital native players have got that network almost by default, right? Traditional retailers, I think, have the opportunity, but their challenge is how do I take my customer base of a million or 5 million or, you know, 20 million customers and digitally engage with them on a regular basis. So I also have a digital network that I can then take out into all these other directions to create value. Yeah. Yeah. And I also um, know of a retailer who I was having this conversation with and they said, and the comment that was made is that every time, every time I teach somebody how to shop online, I teach them how not to shop in my store. And so, you know, how do you have that digital relationship? Really, it's it's the exchange of information. Right? Yeah, right. Information becomes the power. Right. That's something else that we've talked about as it relates to data and product attributes. You know, one of the things that uh, that was highlighted that we still have a long ways to go is that a consumer that gets online, whether it be on social media or on an e-commerce site, they're interested in something. They're interested in information. So whoever does a better job of expressing that information is going to be the winner. And so retailers need to understand they either can lead the narrative or they can be led by the narrative. Hmm. And, and that goes in multiple aspects of their business. But as it relates to awareness and shopping and health and stuff like that, the retailer has an opportunity to lead that, but it comes back to foundational data. How do you search for products? How do I... Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of shopping online. I don't have all day to scroll from page to page to page yeah. to page to page. And if I'm a first timer online, that's intimidating to me. Right. Um, and it's a turnoff. So the only thing we have is the search button. And if we haven't improved the search button, then the information that I'm looking for isn't being given to me. So whoever's sharing the information with the least amount of friction, again, becomes the winner. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. I, I think a lot of people, certainly a lot of retailers, don't understand the, the nuances, the differences between data and information and, you know, ultimately intelligence. My God, Gary, we've been talking for 39, 40 minutes already. I can't believe it. It seems like we just got started here. Well, that, that's a fascinating guy to talk to. Yeah. So what it tells me is that we need another session with Doug, number one, because we can't possibly complete this in any reasonable time. But uh, but I just want to kind of, you know, in a, in a, in a closing thought, just, just mention a couple of things. I mean, I think you started off by saying the four areas that I that you feel retailers are really focused on is shopper experience, operational efficiency, supply chain, and data and analytics, right? How much do you think the pandemic has impacted in terms of pushing the timeline forward in terms of advancing some of these things? Oh, exponentially. I was having a conversation with a retailer and you know, cash flow is is pretty strong in the industry. It doesn't mean they're more profitable. They just right. have more cash flowing, right? And so now a lot of retailers are saying, not only do we need to do this, but it's something we've always wanted to do. So we need to get it on, get on it now while we have the cash flow to do it. And so that's the one thing that a lot of uh, information technology professionals are dealing with right now is 
prioritizing those activities. Also, how can I bolster my team? Understanding it might not be a long-term activity. It might be a two-year, three-year term. But how do I bolster my team to have somebody come in and help me sort of identify what are those issues, then help me identify. And I know Gary's outfit does a really good job with this and look forward to working with them, but identify who's really good at doing these things, but then taking it all the way through implementation, right? So a lot of times we do really good of helping identify. We do really good of helping identify who are the, the, the service providers we should be working with. But then we, as, as maybe industry consultants, we walk away in a lot of instances and we allow the implementation to happen. Well, that's still a labor resource inside that retailer. Somebody's got to lead it for the retailer. And if you have a smaller team and you know you need to expand that for a period of time, how do I do that effectively so I can get these projects into the pipeline and then executed and move on to the next one without hiring 10 people that I know I won't be able to keep after three years? Wow, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, Gary, anything else? Uh, no, this has been great. Yeah, I, I think uh, it would be terrific if we could get Doug to uh, come back and uh, uh, do another session with us. Okay. Yeah, and I think, you know, if we, Doug, if we can get you back in a couple of months and we have pretty much the first half of the year done here, I think we'll start seeing what, what are the lasting impacts of the pandemic in terms of changes in behavior, both from a retail organization and go-to-market perspective as well as a consumer perspective, right? Because obviously one impacts the other. I think it's going to be, you know, I'm really excited about this year from a change perspective because I think we're going to see a lot of things change right in front of our eyes. And 2020, 2020 was the year that never was in some sense, but 2021 is going to be back from a transformational perspective. I think we'll look back at this year and said that was the year that so many things changed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, for sure, I'm I'm happy to join you guys uh, whenever you're willing to have me. I will I will put a disclaimer, and this is one that my wife shares. I'm often wrong, but never in doubt. <laughs> that's good, you know. And that's one thing they do say about entrepreneurs: they're never sure about what they're doing, but they're always do always do it confidently. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> so, listen, Doug. It's been it's been fantastic. By the way, you 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 know, for being on our show, you are going to get a gift. You're gonna get the, the retail perch coffee mug. You you too will have a. That's right. Yeah. You want to probably want to put it. Yeah. There you there go. Okay. Collective yeah. item. Awesome. That's right. Yeah. So all we'll need, if you can just drop us an email with uh, your address that we can mail it to, we'll make sure we get it to you. And next time we get you on the show, we can share a cup of coffee in the same month. So that'd be great. So that would be awesome. I will sit proudly on my desk for my wife and dog to to enjoy until I get there back to my go. office. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been it's been it's been great having uh, Doug on the show, folks. If you have any guests that you think we should get on the show, read, email us at the retail perch at birdseye.com. Of course, we now have our own website you can reach us on instagram on uh, twitter on linkedin and all these wonderful places and listen if you got a question for doug and you want him to address it next time send us an email as well you know we're happy to uh, entertain all of that and I, I have some better good news for you gary in terms of how our little podcast is doing i think this is episode number 27 and so we've been at it a little more than a half a year and we're actually number four in a list of top grocery grocery podcasts. So, you know, that's that's pretty good. And I think uh, with Doug being on the show this week, 
I think we're going to jump up a couple more notches. We're going to climb even further. Yeah, you know, because I think I think there's two things. I think I think number one, Doug's experience, and then his insights into looking at the industry, both being inside and being outside, and now working with retailers and coming up with solutions. I think that's a very unique perspective, and I think our listeners are absolutely going to love it. So, Doug, thank you so much. You want to say anything before we close out here? Well, I hope I don't fall off that pedestal that you guys just put me on. I, I... <laughs> I enjoy the conversation. I love this industry and uh, I couldn't be more prouder of this industry and what we've done over the last 12 months. So thank you for you guys giving people a platform to have discussions about it. Terrific. Again, thank you, folks. Thanks for listening. You know, we appreciate you guys tuning in on a weekly basis and being part of this uh, podcast and the support that you guys have given us has been amazing. Uh, But we'll see you again next week. Till then, uh, be safe and hope you get your vaccinations and you're ready to go live life again. Gary, anything before we close out? No, another great discussion and uh, we'll look forward to the next one. Awesome. Bye, folks. All right. Thank you. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off. Bye.